Resonate to Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so we are now starting into the life of Solomon, though we still yeah. got a few more things for David to finish up at. But um, yeah, so we kind of cut off right in the middle of the division of the Levite into various roles, um, including where we picked up, where they're gatekeepers, which um, actually historically goes back to Phineas. If you remember that story, which... Ah, gosh, I don't remember if that's numbers or Deuteronomy where, um, ultimately there's people doing stuff outside the, the tabernacle, uh, that were just an affront to God and Phineas takes care of it. And I guess it starts becoming the gatekeeper, uh, from that area. And it's like intermarrying. That's okay. Yeah. There were people with a, yeah, a different tribe and people being seduced and yeah. all that happening and right in front of the tabernacle. I think I'll say I kind of like skimmed these sections. But the one thing to consider is last week we looked at First Corinthians and how we all have different roles in the body. And so we can kind of step back and celebrate that a little bit. Yeah, We see certainly. them all fulfilling their different roles in the body to keep things operating and structured. Yeah. And you have a lot of Levites at this point and a lot of things for them to do. So why not? Why not protect the, the tabernacle from people desecrating it in some ways and they end up with treasures and people to oversee the money and the priesthood certainly collects money and you do need people to oversee it. But at the same time, this is also a way that the priesthood will probably, um, it'll play out where the priesthood can, can start abusing that system as well. Um, it, it will be a temptation that they will seize on where, uh, Jesus shows up on the scene and there's the whole money changers and all that. And that's all overseen by the priesthood at the time. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's ways that, the handling of the money will be a problem as well. Yeah. And then we get a whole lot of military divisions, 12 groups, 24,000 men. They got a whole lot of people. Um, but at the same time, we should remember things like Deut- Deuteronomy 20, where um, the, the commanders would have to recruit from the men and, and that ar- that Israel was never really designed to have a, a standing army. And so mm-hmm. it, it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit troubling to read this text and to feel like, all right, they're, they're collecting their money. They're organizing, uh, um, uh, a military and it's starting to feel a little super powery as Israel continues to grow. Whether yeah, that's a good or a bad thing from the chronicler, I, I don't know, but um, it makes me a little uneasy on how God speaks about Israel's might and power versus their own kind of building a might and power. Right. We see them starting to become dependent on their own might and power instead of the way that God designed it is the money they collected was to go to the Levites and it was to go to help the poor, not to build a strong military or really develop any kind of strength outside of what Yahweh gave to them. Yep. Uh, and then we hear about the leaders of tribes from the past. And if you're a returning tribe at this time in, in the Chronicles time, like, it's, yeah, it's good to know which families were really kind of over the group. But um, not only that, but what some of the delineation of jobs were, things mm-hmm. like that. And then David gives yeah. a charge an encouragement to Israel. But once again, and I mentioned this in the things to look forward to, like if you look at what Nathan said to David about, um, what God said to Nathan to tell David about his kingdom and the future King and the one who was sitting on the throne together forever. And what, um, and what David says here, it's just, doesn't totally add up and it definitely feels like David's reinterpreting things, but David's even recognizing, look, I felt it in my heart to build this temple and God kind of told me no, but we're still going to build it. And then he even adds, it's because I was murderous. And it's like, well, maybe we haven't read that yet. Maybe that's somewhere in scripture, mm. but um, that hasn't been explicit in the, in the text yet. You know, it just, it makes me actually think of when um, Seth was born after Adam and Eve and 
uh, Eve said like, oh, this must be the one who's going to mm-hmm. crush the head of the snake. And she didn't understand because she had part of the story, but didn't see the fulfillment of it. And I just wonder if that's what David is doing here. He thinks that when God gives him this promise about the son who will rule with rest, that it's going to be his, his son, but it's not. It's going to be um, his heritage. His yeah. yeah. There's definitely some tension to me around characters who take initiative and the characters who sit back and like trust. And I think there's times where it's rewarded and time that is not. I mean, even Abraham uh, coming to the new land takes a lot with him and lot Abraham thinks he's barren and lot becomes the way that Abraham could ultimately have a kid. And it's not really until lot almost really gets captured and kind of goes his own ways that Abraham really moves forward in his faith with God. And so, um, yeah, there's all these sort of things where it's like, well, I, th- this is how I see it happening. Let me go make it happen. And, um, and it's not quite what, what God had, um, designed or, yeah. uh, spoken to. It, it's almost reading more into God's word than, than's there. Right. And so, uh, but this building is going to be built quick. It's not a small building to build in, probably just a lifetime of Solomon. Uh, if you even imagine Notre Dame uh, in, in Paris, it took 180 years to build that sucker, uh, but they're going to build this thing in less than 40 years for Solomon's reign. And so, yeah, they've got some work to do and to do it quick. Yeah. And again, we're pulling back on this Joshua theme. He's David is speaking to Solomon as Joshua charged Israel, except instead of war, they're going to build a temple. Yeah. And they start collecting money, which feels like a throwback to the tabernacle. All mm-hmm. the Israelites chip in to, to the building of the temple. Um, and so, yeah, it, the stuff's given freely, not under coercion, which is a good thing. Yeah. And then David prays. He kind of speaks over everybody, which is a really beautiful closing prayer. Yeah, it's, it's a great closing prayer. He's, he's recognizing that obeying God's commands, things will go well. He prays for Solomon. There's very little talk of wisdom and stuff like that up to this point, but he does take teach a ton, talk a ton about uh, Solomon being obedient, uh, which I think will be an interesting play out of Solomon's wisdom versus Solomon's obedience. Yeah. And there's this instruction kind of in error, how they respond is they honor God, they submit their future to him, they bow their heads, they offer sacrifices, and then they eat and drink with gladness. And I think that's really a good picture of even how we can come and gather together as followers of Christ in community, remembering that there are times to celebrate with gladness, but we, um, we bow our heads and we worship God together as well. Yep. Uh, and so he's anointed king. Everyone pledges uh-huh. their loyalty to him. It's great. Um, and he's a very prosperous king. Uh, Majestic. Yeah. <laughs> and David dies. Uh, but we also hear about um, uh, Samuel and Nathan and Gad. And so um, there's a good number of, of folks that think the whole book of Samuel ultimately comes through the three of them. And so yeah. final thoughts yeah. on a book we're halfway through. <laughs> I know we're only halfway through it. It's just divided by scroll, but it is a good stopping point. I kind of, anyway, I really liked this book. I liked the hopefulness in it. I liked the idea of the chronicle or looking back on everything that's done, that's happened and then writing it, looking forward to the reunification and the restoration of Israel. Um, I think what stood out to me a lot is just integrity in all areas of your life. We saw where David held integrity and we saw where he failed and how his personal life overflowed into his role as king and how incredibly destructive it was. So it's a reminder for me and for us that our actions in private, our actions at home, our actions in our personal lives will impact everything around us. It'll have a ripple effect. Um, and so I think that that was humbling and a good reminder for me as I studied this. Yeah. And it's important to know, I mean, this is written long after these times. And so the, the people aren't hearing it and thinking, oh, is Solomon going to work out okay? Is Solomon going to be the one who leads us? How are the kings that are going to be after him? They know most of these histories. And so on some level, there's just a little bit of a revivalist feel to this of, mm-hmm. of remember when we were great 
And remember when um, we were at least unified as a country? Yes, our kings were not so wonderful, but the Chronicle leaves out some of the dirtiest details. But like, remember when we were unified as a country and had this temple and, and we had this going on? Like, let's, let's, let's have this sort of direction towards that again. I feel like you're trying really hard not to say make Israel great again. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's not totally that, but maybe a little bit of that. And so, uh, but we begin in Second Chronicles as well. It's important to remember, this is if you're reading uh, through the Hebrew Bible, uh, before it was sort of rearranged by Christians, um, this is the last book. Mm. And uh, it, it finishes with this sort of hopeful, optimistic tone uh, to it. But uh, we won't get into why it was ordered the way it does. But the king will be divided. Uh, the author even says that the plan, this was God's plan that the kingdom would ultimately be divided. Um and he turns most of his attention to the South uh, and the chroniclers likely the chronicle was written to the Southern kingdom to begin with. And so um, that, Which would, was Judah that would make sense and Benjamin. Yeah, to Judah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and given what we know about Jesus's lineage, Judah certainly is the one that probably is worthy of that attention. Yeah. So yeah. beginning of second chronicle, Solomon's worshiping over at Gibeon. Yeah, so he starts his reign by worshiping. He wants to be a kingdom that is dedicated to Yahweh. He wants to follow his father's advice. And if you were a little lost on like what what is in Gibeon, um, there's definitely some confusion of like there was the tent, there was the whole tabernacle and the ark itself. And eventually it seems like the tabernacle is wrecked. The ark came to one place. And at some point, the tabernacle seems to get re- restated in Gibeon, gets restored or put back up. Uh, but David takes the ark to Jerusalem. So it's likely that the leftovers of the original tabernacle, of Moses' tabernacle, exist in Gibeon. And David has kind of built a new tent in Jerusalem for the ark to sort of temporarily sit in until the temple gets built. And so if you're wondering why Gibeon, what, what's going on there, what's the most high place, all that, uh, I think that's what's happening there. Cool. And Solomon prays for wishes, or not wishes, prays for wisdom. He should pray for wishes, right? That should be, if you have one wish, what do you pray for? More wishes. Uh, but no, Solomon agrees, or Solomon asks for for wisdom from God. Um, and God honors that uh, in such a way that because he didn't ask for wealth amongst some other things, he actually gives them in addition. Uh, but it's important to remember, Solomon's ask here is so that he, wisdom, so that he can govern the people well, mm. that he can lead them in and out, that he can shepherd the people well. And so if that's, that's why the wisdom is given, I think that's also why the wealth is given uh, for him to govern his people well. Um, but we're going to see him not necessarily use that wisdom or the resources in addition to that, the way that um, I think God originally intended to give them for. Yeah, I think we'll reference back to this prayer quite a bit as we study the life of Solomon and to see where um, he stewarded God's gifts to him well and where he did not. Uh, something I thought of is Colossians 2, though. It talks about how the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And if we are united to Christ in faith, we have access to this as well. Sometimes it sounds so awesome to think of Solomon having this wisdom to rule and to lead. But remember, like we've read, we have the mind of Christ, like 1 Corinthians says, and we have the treasures of wisdom and knowledge through Christ. And so we have the same gifting, if not a g- greater gifting, than Solomon had in ruling Israel. Not that we are all appointed to rule a kingdom, but as we walk in obedience um, and by the Holy Spirit, we can have that same wisdom and discernment in the way we live our lives. Yeah. And so uh, let's jump back over to First Kings, which we're jumping back in time again. Um, Solomon, uh, we'll notice a difference here. So before Solomon even prays for wisdom, we get this 
marriage alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I struggle with this decision to do this marriage alliance. And the reason why is like, we will see pretty quickly by first Kings five, first Kings nine, we're, we're going to see things where um, Solomon basically starts in, enlisting and enslaving some of his people to help build this temple to, to continue this growth of of Egypt um, while um, one empire was built on the backs of slaves in the store for storehouses in Egypt another empire is being built on the backs of, of the slaves right here in Jerusalem and and I think there's some foreshadowing to the fact that Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter here and it seems um, it seems odd that this one of the first acts of this new king of Israel is to marry this Egyptian woman. Yeah. And again, I think we see him trying to gain power and control in worldly ways through marriage alliances, through power, through authority, through wealth, whatever, instead of just by one thing and one thing alone, which is God. Like Solomon is, we see him so quickly not needing to depend on God for anything because he's got marriage alliances. He's got everything he needs. Yep. And so he is given the wisdom and we get a first application of this. Um, and it seems like a little bit of a strange story of his suggestion was cutting the baby in half and things like that. But I mean, we see in TV and movies, TV shows and movies today. I mean, even a similar situation where someone has like a, a captive group and in order to find out if one of them is related to whoever they're trying to negotiate with, they might threaten them with a gun or something mm-hmm. like that. And they'll find out that, that that's the real person or somebody was telling a lie. And so it, we still tell stories to this day that are similar. They just seem less shocking because we're not talking about cutting a baby in half, but um, it's a similar idea. Yeah. And so um, I really like how this story is about two prostitutes and we see God's love and heart for people on the margin. So one of the first applications of Solomon's wisdom is given through Solomon granting dignity and time to two women who would be considered um, as invaluable in the larger culture. So many would kings would consider the child of a prostitute to be of no value, but Solomon honors them through listening to their story and caring for the life of that child. That's really a cool thing. Yep. Well, let's jump back into the New Testament. We're going to deal with uh, kind of the end of Corinth and the beginning of Galatia. And so we're still in the middle of what is one of Paul's greatest uh, chapters, I think, uh, written uh, dealing with uh, resurrection, dealing with the gospel. Um, and let's not forget, uh, in in Athens, when we read it through uh, Acts, uh, which was not far from Corinth and the city he stopped and right before he came to Corinth, in Athens, when he's preaching and he gets to the resurrection, they respond with this. Now, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, that's uh, in Acts 17. And so uh, the idea of resurrection of the dead to, to most Greek thought was was a bit absurd. There was some teaching around it, but majority did not. And um, it was it was offensive in a lot of ways and a very unique idea. And so Paul um, Paul's basically like, but if there is no resurrection, what's the point? Like Jesus is still dead in the grave and I've been lying to you the whole time. And not only that, but there's no actual payment for sin. Like resurrection is one of the most important parts of, of what we believe and what we confess. And so um, he's trying to drive that home that there's some that are saying that, that there's no resurrection. And Paul's like, no, that's, that's one of the most central tenets of everything we are trying to say. Um, and so if, if, and he gets into this, like if Christ has been raised, like he's the first fruits of that, mm. that, that, um, Paul's teaching, yes, what happened in Jesus will ultimately happen to all people. And, and we get this, a little bit of this idea of federal headship. We'll, we'll probably talk about it a little more in, in, in Romans too, but this idea that through one representative, a whole group will, 
be affected. And so in Adam, uh, all that are in Adam and we are all that when we're conceived and, and born, um, we, we are in sin, but through one person, that same economy that works through Adam can work through us in Jesus. And so, uh, through him, through, through him as our representative, we, we can be resurrected. We can have life that, that that's something we receive. And he's the first example, the first fruit of that. Right. I think this is where the rubber meets the road for us. And that's why we see Paul get so amped up over it. And that the resurrection changes everything. It changes everything for us. It's why we live how we do. It's why we suffer and are joyful in the midst of it. It's why we give up and what's why we live out of agape love because Christ was resurrected. And we know that we will one day receive that resurrection. Um, I think oftentimes people take that verse about we are of most men to be pitied out of context a little bit. I mean, I think that there is suffering, a suffering component for sure that goes along with Christians. But there's also um, a joy that cannot be taken. There is a peace that is unexplainable. So um, while our life as Christians is hard and does include suffering, we should also be so compelling and moving to others in the joy and peace that we carry in the midst of all of it that cause others to want to follow Christ. Yeah. And, and Paul's trying to answer questions that him, I assume he thinks they're asking, like, when's this going to happen? Well, it's like, well, when Jesus wraps up the whole thing and when he returns, yeah. that's when it's going to happen. But until then, go. this is what we believe. This is what we stand for. We live for the resurrection uh, and to tell others about it. And so, um, but I think they're, he's still preemptively answering questions like, what's our body going to be like? What, what, what Can you explain that all to me? And I think that's where he jumps the analogy of the seed, which I, I feel, I find a pretty brilliant analogy where yeah. uh, like the seed is the plant, but it's also not the plant. Like, and it goes into the ground and it doesn't look like the plant. It's not like a seed looks like a mini version of a plant. It looks completely different, but it still is the plant. And it, when it goes into the ground, it comes back up. And when it comes up, it looks different. It's still body. Like our bodies are still going to be a, body, just going to be physical, um, which to the Greek thought was very abstract. But um, I think it's important that our spirit and our physical self are, are both resurrected, but it's not going to look the same. And mm-hmm. he doesn't give an answer of exactly what it's going to look like. I don't think we can even imagine exactly what it's going to look like, but it's going to be supernatural. We just think in natural terms, but there's something supernatural about when our bodies come back up out of the ground. And so, um, yeah, I think it's a smart analogy to try to explain that to them. Yeah. I just, it's, I mean, think about this bridge. Think about the, how the earthly and the heavenly are bridged through Christ. He has gone the way, he's led the way and coming back from the dead. And that we get to inherit that one day. We get to live that out as well. It's really, I mean, it's exciting if we stop and think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he even talks about like, look, like all these different creatures and all these different things and the sun and the moon, like they all have their their bodies, but like in the new heaven and the new earth, like they're everything that was like profane and and not supernatural, like will go away and everything will be sacred and supernatural and heavenly. Um, it will still be itself, but it won't be itself. And and we look forward to that. Mm. But until then, and, and, and in those, well, he's like in those days, like when that happens, it will come to pass death, where is your sing? And so uh, I think sometimes we take those, those, those little verses there and claim them now. And I get that. And in some ways, yes, we have victory over the grave because of Jesus, because he is our first fruits and had victory. But at the same time, like there still is physical death and there still is crying and there's still, death still has some sort of sting that one day will truly, truly go away. 
And so, um, and Paul's simply encouraging them in this process. He's, he's telling them to keep laboring, keep, keep working, keep enduring. It's not all in vain because we're working towards something we can't totally see. And, and we're living for a kingdom that's not this world. And we're living, and we know that because of the resurrection. So keep at it, sacrifice for the sake of the cause. Yeah, I think the culmination of his whole argument, and again, think of the whole context of 1 Corinthians, it's that the dead are going to be raised imperishable, and we will be changed and made immortal, and we will live forever in Christ. And we talk about this, or maybe we don't talk about it, but sometimes we just read it over quickly. You guys just stop for a minute and dwell and remember the truth and the beauty of this final resurrection where everything will be made perfect. I think the idea of living outside of death is is really beyond my understanding, but it sounds incredible, and I'm so excited. And what is Paul's response to all of this? Well, he tells us, therefore, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So everything you do, I just want to encourage us all as believers, be steadfast and be immovable because we know that we are living to this greater imperishable resurrection that will come one day. Take heart, be endurant, steadfast, persevere in what you're doing because Jesus is worth it on the other side and even now. Absolutely. And then a classic pastor move right after telling them to be steadfast and not labor in vain. Paul's like, but how about you give a little money too? Um, it's pretty smart by Paul. And so he's hearing about the struggling church in Jerusalem and he knows that it's going on. And, and we're going to see this again in, in the second letter of to Corinth, but Paul's even asked in Galatia for money. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's a global scope, like all the churches care for each other in some ways. Like they don't think of themselves and Paul certainly doesn't think of them as completely independent, but part of one larger collection of churches. Yeah. Working to meet the needs of the church globally is Looked different for them, but it's still great opportunities for us here. So Paul plans on traveling to them someday. He's going to send Timothy. He's still encouraging Paulus to possibly come too. And so um, he, he we, we don't wrap up this letter as if Paul's frustrated. He genuinely loves this church yeah. and wants to get back with them. And so, uh, but he does finish with some good final words, like be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And you're almost like, rah, rah, rah. And then it's like, let all you do be done in love. And I'm like, oh, that's the right way to temper uh, some of those words that, um, that, that probably need to be paired better in, in the culture that we live in. And um, th- that, that sort of unite f- uniting force of part of being strong is doing things in love and, yeah. um, and, and making sure we understand that. Right. Watchfulness comes out of love. Standing firm in the face comes out of love. Um, men being men comes out of love. Yeah. So good. And Paul gives us final greetings. He, yeah. he loves his people. He loves telling people about other people, encouraging them. Yeah. It's so good. So some final thoughts. I really, really enjoyed studying this book. I just really enjoyed following that major thread of beginning with Paul, reminding them of their identity, who they were, not even looking at their behavior yet, but reminding them of who they were in Christ, that they were saved and they had his mind and they were chosen. Um, and then just really emphasizing the component of unity in the church. I mean, if we are as Christians, as those who are part of a of a church body, this is a really important book for us to look at and consider what role we play in the church, how we can use the gifts God has given us to serve the church and decide um, what we live to and why we live to it and how we can bless and grow 
others within the church body. Um, and then I think the other thing that stood out to me a lot was just the urgency at which we were to share the gospel and make it the central focus behind what we do. Chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 15, we read again and again, Paul saying he does everything because of the gospel of Christ. And let's do it that way as well. Yeah, I think it's I think it's good that the Corinth is certainly a terribly messy church with some of the stuff that was happening there. But at the same time, like... Like the, 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 one of the central pieces that Paul keeps driving home for them is to be unified, to, to not think of any individual or, or group as higher than another, not to place people on pedestals, not to look down on other people and that they are this symbiotic thing. And he uses analogies throughout it, things like the body or that they're the temple, like the, that they're all parts that build together as one. Mm-hmm. And so for some of the individualistic culture that we live in to hear instruction like this i think it's important to remember sort of the the oneness and the togetherness that the church is meant to be um and and that a lot of the ways that there's struggles that the solution is ultimately remembering our oneness that we are in christ yeah i really think i've had like a paradigm shift around this (laughs) through studying this it's stuff i knew in my head but i feel like i understand it in a different way and maybe because we've been so long kind of in quarantine and not been with the body so much i appreciate it a lot more but it's, I think, I'll, I think I'm going to live and approach even my thoughts around the church differently, especially regarding unity and serving after yeah. having read this book. Absolutely. I, I hope that quarantine kicks everybody into that mode uh, where we're <laughs> like, oh, we do need each other more. And it's actually really nice to be in each other's life, even if I'm sacrificing myself for others. Like it's actually been, I miss that. And so um, hopefully that's, that's, that's something we learn out of the season. Yeah. And so we end up in the book of Galatians, um, which um, I think is a... Uh, not a simple book at all uh, on many fronts. Uh, and not only that, but it's even a hard book to date. Uh, some say that it's one of Paul's first letters. There's no mention of the Jerusalem Council, so that would be an argument for that. But at the same time, it's definitely some more developed theology than we've seen so far out of, um, certainly out of Thessalonians and, and, and even more so, or not more so, but even so out of, out of Corinth. And so dating, it's hard. It's hard to know exactly when Paul would have written this. Uh, but just for some context, Galatia is a region, not a city. Uh, so this is to the region of Galatia, maybe a few churches that are going on there, including Antioch, which uh, was where Paul and Barnabas sort of hightailed it. If you remember back in Acts on their first journey, hightailed it up in the middle of Turkey. Um, And this is a region where a more conservative version of Judaism would have been, um, would have been common. Uh, So I've talked about it before on the podcast, the sort of two major Jewish camps, rabbinic camps of Shammai and Hillel. And um, this is the home of the Shammai crowd who uh, took a more conservative approach on a lot of things. And one of those is around how do we deal with Gentiles? And uh, they were people that the Gentiles were always on the outside. Uh, The Hillel crowd was a little more welcoming and a little more gracious. And so the question of who's justified, who's allowed in, stuff like that, it was a conversation that these groups had. And and the area of Galatia was the group where um, the, the... inviting of the Gentiles in would have been a real, real big struggle for. And so uh, I think some of what Paul has to deal with is sort of those those historical cultural trends that are now affecting the, the Christians and talking about justification and the children of Abraham and these questions that he deals with and, and who is truly justified um, is, is a really important thing for them to tackle. And so we're going to see that as the letter plays out as we go. Yeah, we see... You know, Paul talks about being zealous and we see the zeal here because people are adding to the gospel and creating a cost for salvation that's not truly there. Um, 
his heart, he's so passionate that anyone and everyone can freely receive the gift of salvation through the grace of God. And that's what he's going to hit on here. Yeah, yeah. He, it, it feels in some ways like a very inclusive letter from Paul. And I don't mm-hmm. mean that to be talking about universalism or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But I think Paul's really dealing with the radical nature of the fact that Jews and Gentiles and men and women and slaves and free people, like Jesus Jesus is all have access to the grace and justification of Jesus. Yes. And so um, in the same way. Yeah. And so it's an, it's an important shift for these people that have come from a, probably a much more conservative mindset of like, no, it's only for the Jewish people or Jewish men or something like that. And so um, it, it's, it's something that Paul gets pretty fired up at. So when we get yeah. to this greeting, uh, Paul, uh, Paul gives a greeting, but he doesn't offer the kindest words uh, to the church. Sometimes he's like, I thank God for you guys all the time in right. my prayers and stuff like that. There is not a whole lot of that in the beginning of this letter. The, yeah, there's none of it. It's, yeah, he yeah. speaks about, gives glory to God, affirms you know, his appointment by God. but And then he breaks right into it and and just lays it out saying yeah. that you guys are are following a, a, a non-gospel in a way. Uh, that there's another gospel is not really a gospel to begin with. And so... Um, there's, we're going to see what that might be as we go of what, where they might be, um, straying from the gospel. But, um, Paul, Paul is pretty fired up. I think it's important to get the emotions that it seems like Paul's writing with here. Yeah. It's really interesting to me that, you know, I mean, we've just studied Corinth and how awful they were in their behavior. And yet Paul really adores them, gives lots of thanks for them. And he seems to be more upset in this circumstance because, um, the Corinthians, you know, were adding license. They were kind of cheapening the grace of God, but the Galatians are charging for the grace of God, preaching a different gospel, and Paul is furious around it. So it made me just kind of think and like compare and contrast in my own mind what I view about people who swing towards license versus people who swing towards legalism. And they are both wrong. They are both sinful in God's eyes. But I, I was kind of surprised to hear Paul's passion in around the legalism, almost more so than the license. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, we'll look forward to more Galatians next week. Psalm 145? Yeah, so, you know, the author talks about at the beginning how he's going to meditate on the works of the Lord, and then he closes with these incredible statements about the character of God. God is faithful. God is kind. He satisfies our desires. So meditate on God. As you do that, you will discover his character, and it is compelling. Uh, We may miss it if we don't slow down to consider who God is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an acrostic poem. It's the last, uh, supposedly, of the Psalms attributed to David. But um, I, I do want to point out, Sarah said everything that I would ever add to that. But um, when you get to verse 13, there's like stuff in parentheses if you read the ESV, depending on which translation you have. And uh, this is where my geekiness comes out. Um the, the Old Testament we have comes from uh, what is called the Masoretic Text. It's one of the collection of Old Testament writings. Um, and there was a line that was just missing because in an acrostic poem, you deal with all the alphabet, but there was a letter that was just missing. And uh, most think somewhere along the way, there was a copyist error, something along those lines. So if you're copying from one sheet to the next sheet, you might skip a line by accident and you didn't mean to. Um, but we also had the Dead Sea Scrolls. We had Septuagint. We had other groups of the Old Testament that we found sort of the missing text and have put it back in there. And so, but what I really want to say is uh, sometimes there's this accusation that exists in academia or the secular world, like, well, like, how do we know the Bible's reliable? And it's just a collection of which ones like they thought were better than the others. And, and, and 
hear me there's like almost no secrecy in the translation processes like they will put footnotes where they can they will reference even in the beginnings of most bibles here's the the larger uh, codexes we use and you can go to those and they'll put out like here's like we found a thousand scrolls that said this and we found two thousand scrolls that said that and so there's whenever people i think it's a it's such a poor argument when people are like well like all these things got changed over time it's like no like we've we've almost every major Bible will tell you like, look, like we have found earlier scrolls or like, here's where we think things went awry. And there are not that many. It's like less than 2% of all the Bible have any sort of these kind of moments. And so um, when you engage with friends that, that accuse the Bible of that, just lay it into them and be like, nope. I mean, be kind and loving, but just be like, <laughs> no, that that's just, that's just dumb. That was a dumb argument. And so, um, yeah. Anyways. All right, next week. It's loving to call someone dumb, right? (laughs) All right. Okay, so we are going to jump into Song of Solomon this next week. Um, I just really want to encourage you to watch the Bible Project video on it. It will give you a lot of insight and direction in reading it. And also read it slowly. It's poetry. Embrace the imagery of it. And I think you'll really appreciate it. If you want to do an extra deep dive, Nancy Guthrie has this Help Me Teach the Bible podcast, and the one on Song of Solomon is really insightful in it as well. Um, So we're going to follow two kind of themes. We're going to follow this idea of marriage and also God's story of redemption. And you can find both of those in Song of Solomon. Uh, In the New Testament, we're going to be in Galatians. I would encourage you to work really hard uh, to figure out how what we're reading in Galatians can be applicable in your current life or your current context. After we study what it meant for them, which was circumcision, what does it mean for us now? How can this be relevant to you? Or how can it further um, strengthen your conviction and knowledge of the gospel? Yeah. And so, yeah, we're going to do that dive into Song of Songs. And um, yeah, it it can be some of the analogies um, feel like a pretty sexualized book and make you maybe a little uncomfortable at moments. Um, and, and just know like there's just as many of these books can go, um, particularly when they deal with, I mean, we're going to deal with those with Hosea too, where there's mm-hmm. double layer going on. There's, there's something that, that would have been taught and they would have understood maybe around sexuality and, and marriage and all those kind of things, but also the more expansive interpretation of who our God is and how we should understand our God in light of that. Um, and then as we get into the new Testament, yeah, I mean, Galatians and Romans are probably two Paul's two books where he really lays out justification, salvation, those kind of things. And, um, I I think many of us are a lot in, particularly in the reform crowd, love to gravitate towards Romans, but Galatians has still a lot to say and a lot to, to parse out, particularly related to the Mosaic law. And so, um, and, and as I said, around Hillel and Shammai and stuff like that, it might be worthwhile to kind of go back and, and read a little bit of that history and to know kind of what was going on in those conversations. And it might help shed light on a little bit of what Paul has to deal with and what Paul's trying to accomplish in the words that he uses. And so, um, yeah, that's it for me this week. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.